Well, I want to welcome you to Village Church. My name is Michael Fueling. I'm the lead pastor here. I have the joy to open up God's word with you. Typically, what we do at Village Church is we teach through books of the Bible. We're right in the middle of Exodus. We're going to go, whew, we're going to go back into the book of Exodus in two weeks, and we're going to deal with a different subject for the next two Sundays. So what I want to ask you to do is I want to ask you to open up your Bibles with me to the book of Colossians, uh, chapter 2, and we're going to start in verse 8. And what we're going to be doing in this two-week series is we're going to be looking at a specific cultural moment that we're living in, and we're going to process this cultural moment through the lens of the Word of God. All right, Colossians chapter 2, Paul is deeply concerned for the Colossian church. They are a young church. Christianity, um, as we understand it, is brand new, just a couple decades old, and harmful, spiritually harmful ideas are beginning to sneak in, and to most of the people, the ideas feel right. They feel right. Look what happens in verse 8. He says this, see to it that no one takes you captive. The word captive, commonly used in ancient Greek literature, uh, refers to very often the plundering of a ship after you have been tied up. So the notion is that somebody jumps onto the ship, they tie you up, and then they begin to plunder your valuables and to take what is important to you. Now, what is seeking to take us captive? Paul tells us in the next line. He says this, see to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit. And this empty philosophy are ideas that feel good. They feel right. But when you double click on them and you kind of expose them and you scrutinize them, you realize they can't really stand the test. They're empty. They're hollow. On the surface, it feels good, but there's nothing there. So I want you to catch already what's happening. There are ideas in this world that will tie you up and plunder your soul. There, there are movements, ideas, worldviews, theologies, and philosophies that are not for your good or for your flourishing. And their aim is to tie you up and to plunder your soul. Not necessarily the people propagating the idea, but the idea itself. Okay, so where do these empty philosophies come from? Paul tells us, according to human tradition. And this means the way of the non-Christian world. There's the way of Christ, and then there's the way of the world. And the way of the non-Christian world has its own way. And we do not expect the way of the world to be sympathetic or aligned with the way of Christ. They're different. Different value sets, different origins. But there are some human traditions that are uniquely insidious. They look to capture you, to take you captive, to tie your mind up and then plunder you. Okay, so where do these philosophies, this human tradition. Okay, what's the origin of that? And then listen to what he says. He says, according to the elemental spirits of the world and not according to Christ, the elemental spirits of the world for Paul are demons, who by the way are not looking out for your good. I don't know if you know that. If you ever meet a demon and they offer you something, is it a trap? The answer is always, right? 
And so here's Paul's idea. Here's his view of the world. That there are human traditions, there are ways the world thinks and processes and mantras that make sense to the world. And they're actually, even though they feel good, they're fairly insidious. And then really usually well-intentioned people propagate these ideas because they feel good. How many of you like to tell people information that feels good? Everybody. And so many of the people propagating these ideas, I would say almost all of them, are not ill-intentioned. But they're trying to help you feel good because let's be honest, sometimes the world just feels really bad. And so you have these ideas and they're propagating, but what they don't know is that the origins of those ideas are demonic. Now, I want you to turn with me to the book of Ephesians chapter 2. We're going to look at verses 1 and 2, and I want you to start to see this pattern for Paul emerge. Ephesians chapter 2, he says this, talking about before they became Christians, He says, you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. That was then. You've come to Christ, so there's a better way. But then he says this, before you were Christian, you were following the course of this world. In fact, the the Greek word for world here is aeon, or it talks about the ages or the ages past, that there is this uh, course, this way of thinking and living that the world has, and it's counter to Jesus, It's not for you. It's not going to help your relationship with Jesus. It is against it. And then he says this, talking about the course of the world, the ideas, the philosophies, the worldviews that make you feel good, right? Because they're just part of our culture. He says this, following the prince of the power of the air. By the way, who is the prince of the power of the air? His name is Satan. And then he goes on and says, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. Turn with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 10. 2 Corinthians chapter 10, we're going to look at verse 4 and 5, and, and here's what Paul says. He says, for the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh. Why? Because the most insidious things in people's lives are typically not fleshly things. They are things that, that exist in the spiritual, intellectual realm. They're ideas. And you can't really defeat ideas with the weapons of the flesh. They're spiritual ideas. There's, there, there's actually people who are tied up and they're enslaved to these wrong ideas. And while their life is being plundered, you can't just talk them out of their bad ideas. How many of you ever tried to debate somebody out of a terrible idea? It doesn't really go that well, does it? He says, the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but they have, they have divine power to destroy strongholds. Strongholds are things that tie you up and keep you captive. And here's Paul's assumption that the world has been taken captive and there are strongholds and they are tied up and they are being plundered. And so what we need are spiritual weapons that have the ability to untie them and free them from their captivity and their mental plundering. And look at verse five. I mean, this is, he's intense about this. I love this. He says, we destroy <laughs> arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God. A lofty opinion is like, oh, look how novel my idea is. And in fact, it's just an opinion. It's not rooted in reality or truth. It's, it's sort of the arrogant person that believes they have an edge on truth. It's not tested. It's, it's a little bit pompous. It's actually not even good. The more you think about it, it's sort of irrational. And he says this, we take every thought captive to obey Christ. Oh no, we don't give ideas, worldviews, theologies, the power to bind us up and plunder our lives. No, we do something different. We actually take every single thought, idea, worldview, and we take it captive. We bind it up, and we make sure that it is according to Christ. So let's pull back for a moment. 
It is a pastor's job to identify philosophies, worldviews, theologies, ideas that threaten to plunder the minds of our people. To not address them is unloving. To let them just go by like they're no big deal is not honoring to you. So this pastoral tradition actually goes back uh, 2,000 years to the very beginning of the early church. And from the very beginning of the early church, false ideas, worldviews, theologies have crept their way into the local church. And nobody, I have never met anybody who has been like, I think I'm going to be taken captive and plundered mentally, intellectually, and socially today. Nobody. Like, there's nobody trying to experience this. And, and let's be honest just about everybody in this room. Aren't you pretty much doing the best you can with what you got? And so is everybody outside of this room, and so is everybody watching. Like, we're all trying to figure this thing out. We're all trying to figure out how to live in a way that is honestly filled with integrity or truthful. And, and if you believe in Jesus Christ, you're trying to figure out how to live in a way that brings God glory in accordance to his word. And maybe you're here and you're searching and you don't know what you believe. Here's the benefit of the doubt to you. You're trying to figure it out. And it's not easy to figure out the purpose of life and the meaning of life and everything else. And so there's a, there's a real struggle. And so it is understandable for 2,000 years of church history, bad ideas have crept in and taken captive Christians' minds and plundered their souls and lives. And it is the pastor's job to rise up and to say, no more. In fact, we're going we're gonna to train you to be able to spot these lies so that they don't have the ability to plunder you anymore. In fact, what we want to do, we want to do is, is we want to give you the ability to take captive those thoughts to the obedience of Christ and have them no longer take you captive. So I want to introduce you to a word. This word has a lot of baggage to it. And maybe it's possible some of you have a bad experience with this word. But despite what dumb people do with decent words, the word still has value. It's a theological term, and here's the term. It is the word heresy. Now, again, this has been a term that has been wielded like a sword, and people have been burned at the stake for being heretics. But even though people take it out of a context and it has a sordid history in and out of the church, um, the word has theological depth and meaning that I want you to understand. Heresy is any false idea that subverts a gospel essential. It's any false idea that subverts a gospel essential. And I want to illustrate this with a very simple math equation. Three plus three equals, it's not a trick. It's simple. I know, right? Pastors love to trick you. No, Jesus, that's what it equals. I'm kidding. No. Three plus three equals six. If you change any variable in that equation, the equation becomes a lie. You take out any three and you swap it with any other number. You take out the equal sign. You take the plus. You make it a minus. You make it a multiplication. You make it a division. If you take out any variable, the entire equation ceases to be true, even if all the parts of the equation are decent parts. And such it is with the gospel. The gospel must be simple and pure, but there are some ideas that when you add to the gospel, subtract from the gospel, or substitute with the gospel, the gospel no longer becomes the gospel. And if we're going to actually fight ideas that are plundering people's minds and hearts, you need spiritual weapons. You need a pure gospel. 
You need to have clear teaching from God's word. You need spiritual help because these are spiritual issues. And so when we talk about heresy, a heresy is any idea that subverts the gospel. It's anything that is added to, subtracted to, or substituted for any element in the gospel. For example, let me give you a couple illustrations of this. In the second century, one of the most famous pastors in the world, his name is Irenaeus, he wrote a book in 180 AD called Against Heresies. This is 90 years, by the way, after the book of Revelation. And we're already experiencing enough heresies to the point where one of the most important pastors in the world is writing a book called Against Heresies, fighting against this evil, insidious worldview of their day called Gnosticism. In the second and third century, there was a heresy that emerged called Marcionism. You don't have to remember this, but here's the heresy. They believed that the God of the Old Testament was vengeful and terrible and evil. And and then there's a new God that came in in the New Testament, the God of love. And and that God is different than the God of the Old Testament. And, And so what happened? Pastors would rise up and they would say, no, that is not true. In fact, you have erased the entire, like, picture of who God is by framing the God of the Old Testament like this. In fact, that's, that's kind of a really important thing. In the fourth century, there was a heresy called Arianism. And Arian, Arianism believed that Jesus, although he was the son of God, he wasn't eternal. He was created. And though he was divine, he was of a lesser divinity than the father. Well, let me just, a little clue for you. Uh, Jesus is fully God and fully man. And anything less than that is heresy. Uh, Jesus ceases to be who Jesus is required to be, to be the payment of our sins. Uh, Then in the fifth century, there was a heresy called Pelagianism. And Pelagianism taught that Christians could earn their way to heaven, that people were fundamentally good, and that you didn't need God's help in order to be saved. And so uh, there was a pastor in the fourth and fifth century. His name was Augustine. Uh, You might have heard of St. Augustine or Augustine of Hippo, and he wrote the Confessions of Augustine. So uh, he spent the majority of his life writing and fighting against Arianism and Pelagianism, equipping the church to not buy into these Heresies, every single, I mean, literally, we could go every century, there are one, two, three, or five heresies that creep into the church and threaten to subvert the gospel. And when the gospel is subverted, it loses its power because it no longer ceases to be the gospel when you add to it, take away from it, or substitute a key element with something else. Now, here, here's what I love. Guess who's left standing century after century after sta- century? Jesus and pure, true, true believers who believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ. There, there have been some centuries in church history, by the way, that have looked really, really sad. And yet there is still a remnant, faithful people to Jesus, to the word, and to the gospel. So today we're launching a two-week series on a, it is a heresy, but I, wanna, I don't mean that to be an attacking word. I mean it to be a clarifying word. Uh, and it's a heresy that has probably affected every single person in this room, whether you have ever heard of it or not. And so this morning, what I want to do is I want to give you vocabulary for this. Um, I want to help you think biblically, and I want to just help protect your mind from some of these really insidious ideas that feel good, but are not actually congruent with historic Christianity and the gospel. All right, so what we're going to look at for the next two weeks is called progressive Christianity. So two things I really want you to know before we talk about this. Number one, uh, in the next two weeks, I'm not going to talk about a specific church, nor am I going to mention any names whatsoever. 
Uh, it's really unfortunate. We live in a moment where um, Christians, non-Christians, everybody, uh, there is an unusual freedom to just demonize. And I, I just I want to say this. Even if I believe the ideology has its root in demonic origins, I've never met a person who's a demon. And some of these people are your kids, they're your grandkids, they're your friends, they're your coworkers. So let, let it be said of us, whether you're a progressive Christian, you're an atheist, you're a searching agnostic, whether you're an evangelical Christian, a Pentecostal, I don't care. Let it be said that when you engage anybody at Village Church, that we loved you well. That we didn't require you to conform to our beliefs and standards to make ourselves feel good. We didn't judge you with this condemning attitude. When you asked some of your most difficult questions, when you had terrible thoughts and ideas about us, let it be said of us that we loved you well. Let it be said of us that we don't need you to agree with us in order to be great friends, in order to be family, in order to have dinner together. Like, we're okay with a little bit of diversity in thinking because I don't believe that me demanding of you conformity is gonna change your mind or your heart. The gospel at the right time will change your heart if God so wills. And so let it be said of us that, and even in this sermon, that if you're sitting here and you're like, I am a progressive Christian, hook, line, and sinker, um, I am not out to get you. In fact, I would love to talk with you. I love to talk to people that I don't agree with. It is a lot of fun as long as you like having fun conversations. So let it be said of us that we are not demonizing. This is not a sermon for progressive Christians. It's a sermon for village church. It's a sermon for people who love Jesus, who want to be rooted in the word and Christ and the gospel. But there are going to be people who don't believe that that are probably in this room and you're going to send this sermon. If there's anything here that is not accurate or loving, then that's not my intention and I don't want that to be part of this. If you send this to a progressive Christian, you say, let's talk about this guy's crazy sermon and debate it. May they know that there is not one ounce of hatred. I really believe you're probably doing the best you can just like I am doing the best I can with the limitations that I have. Here's the second thing I want you to know. This series, short as it is, is designed to help you and to serve you as you follow Jesus. One of my jobs is to inoculate you from insidious ideas and to give you diagnostic tools so that you can be aware of what's happening around you. And when some of these things start to happen inside of you, which is normal, you don't have to freak out. You can actually reroute yourself back into the word of God. So here's how the next two weeks are gonna flow. This week, we're gonna answer the question, what is progressive Christianity? It's probably a question many of you are wondering right now. What are key identifiers of progressive Christianity? And why are Christians, especially young Christians, drawn to progressive Christianity. And the next week, we're going to look at these questions. How do I avoid future heresies? Because this is not the last really bad idea that's going to subvert the gospel that tries to make its way into the church and pop culture. How do I engage my loved ones who ascribe to progressive Christianity and, and are progressive Christians saved? Okay, what is it? So over the last decade, particularly, it has taken it has basically gotten a lot of steam. It's captured the minds and hearts of some who do and have attended Village Church. Many of your kids, your grandkids, more and more churches in our area, and honestly, the majority of mainline denominations in America. There's this thought, I'll just put it out there for you, that when a church is declining numerically and financially, there are some leadership teams that think, Let's change our views on really important biblical issues and maybe make the gospel not as essential and open it up to 
Let me just tell you, anytime you subvert the gospel of the word of God, let me just go, this is 99.9% of the time, you are literally gonna send your ter- church down a downward spiral. It never goes well. It does not go well anywhere. And, and pastors in decline, they think if we just compromise on a few things, it'll go better, and it doesn't. It doesn't. So here's what progressive Christianity is. It's a movement that seeks to reassess reinterpret and redefine the core essentials of the Christian faith. I'll say this again. It's a movement that seeks to reassess, reinterpret, and redefine the core essentials of the Christian faith, including but not limited to the gospel. The gospel goes from, being, from good news for anybody who trusts in Jesus Christ, no matter where you live, to fundamentally and simply a social gospel where we bring equity and justice to the world. Now, do we want to bring justice to this world in a way that brings God glory? For sure. But at the cost of the gospel, never. They're seeking to reassess, interpret, and redefine the nature of the Bible from God's inerrant and authoritative word to, and here are some phrases as you engage uh, different pastors, teachers, or progressive leaders. They'll say things like, the Bible is a divine book, an ancient writing Uh, revealing snapshots of how God's people express the divine in their context. Each book of the Bible reflects humanity's evolution and in turn, as culture evolves, our theology must evolve with it. And so they see the Bible more as a snapshot of a time in history where even plausibly God revealed himself to those people for that moment, but as culture evolves and progresses, therefore the church and our theology from their perspective should evolve and progress. They're seeking to reassess, reinterpret and redefine sexual ethics from seeing sex as sacred and intended for marriage between a man and a woman to seeing people as sexually diverse and freed from sexual restraints like marriage or heterosexuality or you name it. The Bible's sexual ethic was for then, but as a culture, if I'm a progressive, we have evolved since then, and our theology and practice need to evolve with it. They're seeking to reassess, reinterpret, and redefine identity ethics from seeing things like sexual biology as God-ordained and good to fluid. Biology would be suggestive, but in no way determinative, the Bible's gender and identity ethic was for then, but as culture has progressed and evolved, we now need a new theological ethic that is in line with the times. Now, progressives are moving, and I think this is really interesting because people are moved by vision, and their vision of the future in our cultural moment is very compelling. Their vision of the future is they're going to bring the kingdom of heaven to earth, And they are going to fight at all costs for a world where everything is fair, always, just, equitable. All are included, no matter what you do or don't do, unless you disagree. And to reject their values is to be, for progressives, these are progressive Christians, these are very normal words they use, on the wrong side of theological history, outdated, antiquated, and here's the most personal offensive thing from their tribe that they could say to you, you are unjust. 
So what I wanna do is I wanna take a look at each of these words, progressive and then Christian, and kind of unpack them. So progressive, uh, progressive Christianity, it's heavily influenced by progressivism. Now, some of you think I'm talking politics, and I am not. Because above theology and politics and social views are bigger ide- ideologies and philosophies, and one of them is called progressivism. It's actually an entire way of seeing the world. And progressivism as an ideology, it, 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 it is probably not what many of you understand it to be. I want, I want to give you just simple, clear vocabulary. Progressivism transcends all of this, and it is rightly contrasted with the notion of conservative. So you can be, I haven't told you really how this works out, but you can be theologically conservative and politically progressive. You could be politically conservative and theologically progressive. So lest you, lest you think I'm putting all of this into a political bucket, I'm not. I'm not even dabbling in politics. That is a whole different conversation, not for the pulpit. But be careful that when you see a progressive Christian, you don't put them into a political camp because it doesn't always play that way. So for example, the vast majority of village church would be what we call conservative, theologically conservative. But you go to a theological conservative and you're going to have a very politically and diverse church. So one does not equal the other. So be careful that you don't put words into my mouth that I'm, I'm not, not quite saying. So the difference between a progressive and a conservative ideologically, is one word. It's authority. Who or what gets to determine what is true, right, and just? And whatever gets to determine that controls how you think. And progressives have a very clear, although often unspoken view of authority. So progressives, whether you're talking politically now, theologically, socially, doesn't matter, typically they have key core authoritative documents. But what you need to know about these documents is that they believe the documents are essentially and fundamentally flawed. And as culture evolves and progresses, the documents need to evolve and progress with them. And so when we get to theological progressivism, what you understand is that they believe that the inherent documents of the word of God are flawed. And as culture progresses, the the documents need to evolve and progress with them. They have a core conviction, and here it is. Our core documents should evolve as culture progresses. In progressivism, they have a clear authority, and it's not their documents. It is always culture. Because the documents are always evolving in line with the direction of pop moral culture. And so this is what every progressive needs to understand, that whatever you believe today will not be 100 years from now or 50 years from now, and at the rate we're going two months from now, what progressives believe. It's got to change. Because by its very nature, it's never static. Now, let's talk about conservatism. Conservatism. They have authoritative documents, but conservatism has a much higher view of their authoritative documents. In fact, they believe their authoritative documents are divinely inspired, and they communicate principles that transcend cultures. So they're true always and everywhere, no matter what culture or time you find yourself in. And so here's the conservatives' core conviction. Our core documents transcend our cultural moment because they are rooted in eternal Principles. And so for the theological conservative, here's what that means. The Bible is their authority, 
And it applies to everyone, everywhere, no matter what century they live in, no matter what part of the world they live in, because it's true always for everyone, hear me, when it's interpreted rightly in its context. But for a conservative, that's their fundamental view. Now, statistically, if you're going to be theologically conservative, you will be more inclined to political conservatism. And if you are theologically progressive, you will be inclined to political progressivism. But that is proving itself, especially in the last six to 12 months, it is unbelievable how many people are picking one and the other and they seem to contradict each other, but they actually kind of don't. And so you can't any longer put a theological conservative into your small little bucket and assume that they're going to agree with you politically or socially and vice versa. So it's kind of a trippy world. You know what that means? You just got to listen to people, talk to them and be really nice. (laughs) Otherwise, you're never going to really know what they think. Let's look at the second word, Christian. Progressive Christianity has Christian roots. So from the beginning of time, heresies and bad ideas have loved to attach themselves to the word Christian because it gives them like immediate credibility. It makes you feel good, right? And so it's like, oh, we're a progressive Christian. So it's so fundamentally Christian. But just because somebody hijacks the word doesn't mean it's at all Christian. In fact, Christian has a very real meaning. For something to be thoroughly Christian, it needs to be rooted in Jesus, the real historical Jesus, the God-man Jesus through faith. It has to be rooted in the gospel, the pure, simple gospel without wavering. It has to be rooted in the word of God as our authority for all of life when understood and applied in its context. That's what it means to be truly Christian. But we live in a time where there's really not a lot of accountability for how people use words and people can self-identify in terms of Christian or not and make it mean whatever they want it to mean. But Christianity actually has meaning. Now, progressive Christianity has emerged primarily, if not almost exclusively, out of evangelical churches. They were born and bred here, and there are really legitimate reasons for why they have left it. So what are some of the key identifiers of a progressive Christian? Well, it's actually really challenging because it's a spectrum. So I'm going to read for you seven identifiers, and you might not agree with all of them if you're progressive. You might actually not consider yourself progressive, but you might agree with one or two of them, and you're kind of wrestling. There are some people who are trying to figure some things out, so you might recognize some of these. Uh, There are some people who are all in, bought and sold, far, just progressive, like I'm all in, I'm a progressive Christian. And here's the reality with everybody. You kind of just have to listen to them and talk to them and treat them like a human being and, and let them process this out because whether they agree with you or not, You getting emotional or frustrated or mandating isn't going to make them change anything. It's going to push them away. And so here's what I think evangelical Christianity has to get this into our brains. We love hard conversations and questions. We're good at it. I don't have all the answers. I don't even know, like, I don't even know where to start with some questions, but doggone, I'm not afraid of it. And so we're just going to, we're going to have dialogue. And, and one of the things we got to get used to is like people, especially if they're trying to like search out the Bible, this can be a multi-year process. You can't rush it by yelling or preaching or getting frustrated or shutting down arguments. Like the church should be one of the most safe place, places to ask and to process through whatever questions you have. Historically, we, I'm not speaking for Village Church per se, but the evangelical church hasn't quite been that place for a lot of people. Then once, once I read this, you, if you're identifying with one, two, or three of these things, again, glad you're here. Um, I, I hope it's helpful for you. I hope it gives you vocabulary. 
Progressivism has a poll, and the poll is only in one direction, and that is into full progressive Christianity. And so I just want to warn you that if you don't begin answering some of these questions, there is only one direction that you're going to end up in unless you stop the train now. So here's some indicators. And by the way, I stole these. These are not mine. Uh, you'll, you'll hear people refer to the cross as cosmic child abuse. This is very important. And the reason they do this is because they're treating Jesus as a victim. Now, if you sort of pay attention to my sermons, uh, you'll hear me say something subtle very frequently. Uh, and I say this because I'm trying to inoculate you from crazy ideas. And this is what I say to you. Jesus was no victim, but a willing participant. Have you ever heard me say something like that? He's not a victim. He's not a victim. I am going after subtly these lies that Jesus is the victim of cosmic child abuse. Instead of seeing him as a fully logical, coherent, willing, adult participant in the crucifixion. But here's what you're going to start to hear. So the goal is to sort of cast doubt and to say things that they kind of feel good. Yeah, like why would any father ever do that to his son? Except it was a collaborative plan between the father, son, and the spirit. Jesus wasn't like, me? Really? I have to do this? He was in on it. He willingly went to the cross. Here's the second indicator. Often you'll hear them lessen the authority of the Bible, often referring to it as a, quote, ancient document, referring to the authors as the sages of old. Or people doing, you got to hear this right, people doing their best to understand God, but that was for then, and now we're in a different day. And again, I want to come back to this bigger idea of progressivism. The whole notion of it is that as culture evolves, our truth and documents need to evolve with it. So the Bible is lessened. It's not for everyone in all time. It's a snapshot so that we can learn how to progress just as they progressed. Number three, we, they elevate the good, general goodness of humanity as a basic assumption. And with that comes the, the lack of total need for hell. So rarely will you meet a progressive Christian who believes in hell. They're almost always inevitably universalist or moving in that direction. Uh, number four, sin does not separate us from God. Sin is a, a construction of religion. What is actually separating us from God is our own shame for feeling bad over things that religion tells us is bad but isn't bad. And so shame is the ultimate en- enemy as you get deeper and deeper down the progressive rabbit, trail, rabbit hole. Jesus' humanity at the very beginning is always elevated over his deity. Inevitably, as you get to full progressivism, the deity of Christ is no longer a thing. He might be divine-ish, but the idea that he is fully God um, goes away the closer and closer you get to full-on progressive Christianity. The resurrection, number six, it moves from an historical event to primarily a metaphor of the power of God inside of each and every one of us to overcome bad things in life. And then finally, number seven, there's a general 
downplaying, ignoring, redefining of miraculous events like the virgin birth or the resurrection, if it's too magical, mystical, mysterious, if it requires too much divine intervention, all of these doctrines slowly go away because in the progressive world, inevitably, the closer you get to full-on progressive Christianity, it ceases to be about a personal transcendent God and it's functional agnosticism. So if you go online and you watch interviews with progressive Christians, they're almost, pastors, by the way, they're almost all agnostic, almost all of them. So, but it's interesting, they call themselves pastors and Christians. All right, so number three, why are Christians, especially young Christians, drawn to progressive Christianity? And I need you to pay attention to this because for some of you, you are mad at this because it has really impacted your life, but I, you need to have your empathy on because there are really understandable and legit reasons people go down this path. And it's usually some combination of four things. Number one, their, their experience that the Bible does not adequately answer life's most pressing questions. And I, w- I want to give you a couple categories specifically that they have felt that the Bible does not address adequate, adequately. Suffering, evil, pain, and justice. And I'm going to be honest, these are some of the most impossible and difficult questions to answer. Because I can't tell you why God allows, ordains, or or permits whatever specific event. Like, I'm not in the mind of God. I don't know why these things happen. Here's what I do know. If I am having questions and struggles and doubts, and I come to you, and I don't get an answer that is helpful... Those questions and doubts and struggles, they don't go away, do they? They percolate. They might go quiet for a season, but they're still there. Here's the second, second reason why they leave. Their understandable perception that the church has failed to care about or solve problems of evil, injustice, and oppression. What's interesting is I want to preach a whole sermon on how the world has been transformed for good through Christians and how if Christianity was not a thing, the Judeo-Christian world, like, I want to preach that sermon, but now's not the time, because it doesn't matter what I say. When they look at the world, Christianity has been the dominant force of Western culture, and we see oppression and evil and pain and injustice. Number three, their real experience of mean and graceless Christians. All right, if you grew up in the church, do you remember that mean old guy. Not here, per se, but just wherever you grew up. Do you remember the curmudgeon graceless woman? You got him? Praise God if you didn't have that. Most churches have it. And what happens is some people grew up with that in their home. And this is their vision of Christianity. Mean, graceless, judgmental, needing an enemy to thrive off of, to make ourselves feel good and elitist. That's what they see. Here's number four. Their sincere love for their LGBTQ friends and acquaintances. Just trying to figure out, like, if Christianity is true, what does that mean for them? And it feels incompatible. And so you put these together, some combination of these are going on inside of especially young people as they're trying to navigate the world. 
Because sometimes it feels like if I'm going to give my life to Jesus, a lot of the people that I know that did that, they're really mean and they're judgmental. Does that mean I have to become that? I don't, honestly, I don't even want to be associated with them. It's embarrassing. And yet these are some of the decisions that young people have to make. Let me just tell you a very common way that a young person or any person goes from being in a church to ultimately becoming a progressive Christian. It's almost always some variation of a very simple process. Starts off with very real doubts. By the way, who doesn't have doubts? Everybody does. But there's this fear that if I articulate the doubt... I don't know what they're going to say. I don't know how they're going to react. And, and so a lot of times, especially if you grow up in the church, you have these doubts percolating in your brain and you're like, I don't know what to do with them. I don't know who to tell. Then they get the guts to tell somebody and their doubts are dismissed, minimized, or poorly answered. A dismissed or minimized doubt doesn't go away, does it? And then we feel like we have to have the perfect answer, which sometimes there is no good answer to tough questions. Like you look at pain, evil, and justice, by the way, the progressive worldview offers nothing. It just tells you we're not them. Like these are really hard questions to answer. And so they're dismissed, they're minimized, poorly answered. And I'm gonna say one word here that I, I, I don't want you to laugh at because if you're over 35, you may not get this, but this is real, what I'm about to tell you. Someone in authority, and more and more this person is a YouTuber, Sometimes a teacher, an older sibling, a pastor, they use cultural logic to answer their deep questions. And you know what cultural logic feels like? A warm hug. It feels good. But it's empty philosophy. I am struck when I engage people who are willing to engage in ideas when you hit an empty philosophy and you bring it to its limit, they either have to face it or get mad at you. Because to face that you believed is an empty philosophy, for some people that is way too hard to handle because the implications are great. But someone in authority gave them an answer. And that answer feels really good. Here, here's, here's a cultural mantra that's like a big hug. A God of love would never have allowed that to happen. There are so many things wrong with that statement, but what does it feel like? It feels like a warm hug, but it's false. Our God is perfect and righteous and holy, and there have been hundreds of millions of people who have died in war in the 20th century alone. And the two don't negate each other. Do I have an answer for that? Not really. But the cultural logic feels good. Here's the next step. Their cultural logic is, is beginning to give them a, a hope that they don't have to feel like the questions are unanswered. Then they see their LGBTQ friends and they can't believe that God would not want them to love who they want or to be who they want to be. And that is the straw that breaks the camel's back for most people. It's incongruent. They don't get it. They can't understand it. They almost feel like if they become a Christian, then they're forced to hate these people, which that is a ridiculous dichotomy as well. Like, how is being a Christian make you hate anybody? Like, that's just so backwards. 
Then they find a Christian teacher somewhere or a church that allows them, I want you to hear this, to have Jesus and do whatever they want to do without judgment. You get heaven and you're free without judgment to do anything, anywhere, anyhow. And then finally, they're in a community that accepts them and loves them no matter what and rarely, if ever, calls them out on anything unless they begin to move towards conservatism. And that is to lose your entire life. Do you see the story? And it's everywhere. Progressive Christianity offers heaven and freedom to sin. And that's, you can see why that feels good. But here's the problem. When you take away or when you add or you substitute any piece of the gospel, it ceases to be the gospel. And it ceases to have the power to transform you and to save you. And so when we see an insidious idea that threatens to slowly dismantle someone's confidence in Jesus, the word, or the gospel, I want to open up God's word and say, listen, this is here, and this is real, and there are things that we can do to mitigate the damage being done. I want to end with a couple so what's. Number one, ask and invite the hardest questions. You have questions? Ask them. Don't hesitate. I may not have the answer. Some answers, by the way, don't come right away. Some answers take time. Some answers take thoughtfulness. What I have found is that the best things in life, the best answers are usually nuanced. They usually don't come in fluffy mantras that make me feel like bunny rabbits. They usually come through pain and through thought and prayer and processing. And so one of the things we tell people is like, sometimes you got to do some hard work in order to get to the answer. Sometimes the answer is simple as open up a Bible verse and here's what it says and it means what it says and this is true and this is real. Sometimes it's that easy. But some of these questions, if they were so easy to answer, we'd be able to open up a Bible verse and say, here, take this pill. You should be better. But it's not that easy. So here's what we do. We ask the hardest questions but we also invite the hardest questions. And so some, some young people, especially, they've brought up some ideas or questions to their mom and dad, and mom and dad freaked out. It's like, you don't need to freak out about anything. You, you literally don't. Jesus is good. He is God. He is sovereign. He loves your kids and grandkids and neighbors and friends and coworkers more than you ever could imagine. And he is patient. And that process can, can sometimes take years. Obviously, we want everybody to love Jesus. We want everybody to be deeply rooted, to have no doubts ever, but that's not real life, is it? And so here's what we find. We are gonna be profoundly patient with the process, and the process can be gut-wrenching, and the closer you are relationally, it can bring you to tears and prayer like nothing else. But these are spiritual strongholds, and, and sometimes people gotta go through their their process. So we ask and we invite the hardest questions. I went to Michigan State University for my freshman year of college, and I took a class my first semester called Judaism, and, and the teacher was so smart. He had a bajillion degrees in Hebrew and Aramaic and every other language, and you can imagine. And he had like one objective uh, in this class, and it was to get every single person to believe that the Bible was a fairy tale by the end of the semester. And I sat in that class for two weeks, and he was talking, and here's what went through my brain. 
I cannot think of anything anybody could ever tell me that could prove this guy wrong. His logic, his documentation from where I was sitting, I was like, I think this might be the undoing of my faith. I'd never in my life heard somebody so smart with so many resources dismantle the word of God. So I went to the Michigan State University Library and I found book after book after book that basically corroborated his entire view. Go figure, they didn't have any like conservative theologically Christian books on the issues of the inerrancy, authority, reliability of the historical documents of the Bible, right? So then I went to my church and I was so glad because my church, they, are, they were thinkers. Uh, they invited the toughest questions and our pastor put a sophomore at Michigan State named Scott on me and Scott helped me read a couple books. And it was very interesting because as I read and I read and I read, one of the things they did, which was so amazing, is that they actually brought me to the original documents of the, of the problems that my, my actual teacher, my professor was quoting. So he would read a book and say, this is what this book says. It would quote a document and take it completely out of context. And you know what I found with most of the theological progressive literature? It has no integrity. Their freedom to misquote and to take things out of context blew my mind. For two weeks, I sat in that class not knowing what to do with these factual propositional statements said by this guy, read in this book. And then you look at the the, the note at the bottom and you would go read what was actually written in those and they did not agree with each other. It was amazing. And I would bring these eventually to the professor and say, you said this, the book says this, here's the original. How do you make sense of this? You're not even quoting this in context. And I learned at that moment, truth always wins eventually. Truth is true no matter what. I don't need to be afraid of anything. And here's what I have found in 20 some years of pastoral ministry and trying to figure this stuff is is that inevitably the right information, when you get it, it is true and it is helpful. And there is a lot of terrible, wrong information. And what I found at Michigan State, and I've learned over and over again with multiple students from this church who went to college, is that these books are not always telling you the truth. And they don't care to quote accurately. That is not their highest value. Their highest value is to win a generation over to their thinking. When it comes to this stuff, I got to tell you, truth will win. And if Jesus is true and the word of God is trustworthy, be patient. Do the research. Watch. Watch God prove himself to be true eventually. And sometimes it's not easy. Let me be clear again. One in maybe 100,000 people, not even that. Who's going to wake up and say, today I'm going to reject 2,000 years of church history and doctrine and be a heretic? Nobody. That's not how it works. I sat in that class trying the best I could to make sense of this information without the resources. And thank God I had a good church with a bunch of pastors who had tons of degrees who were exactly where I was. And they connected me with great literature that taught me how to bypass the mumbo jumbo that I was getting. What a gift. So what I learned is I may not have the answers right away. I might have to do a lot of research. The truth is there. When you find it, it's wonderful. Number two, Willow, Willow Creek uh, a couple years ago put out a, uh, these signs, and I loved them. And they said, love everyone always. And people all over Chicago had them. Do you remember that? And I remember looking at that, and it's like, well, here's what's so funny about that. That was novel. <laughs> yeah, that's crazy. <laughs> like, how is that novel? <laughs> and I remember looking at it and be like, do I agree with that? Why wouldn't I agree with that? 
Like love everyone always. Sometimes love disciplines. Sometimes love is quiet. Love looks different in all different circumstances, but let it be said of us that we are the most loving people on the planet. <laughs> let it be said of us that when you call me names and you disagree with me or you got questions that I am patient, that my identity is not bound up in what you think, it's clear in Christ. Let it be said that I walked with you if you were willing to let me walk and if you weren't, I still loved you anyway. Let it be said of me that I don't need you to agree with me, to be friends with me. Let it be said of us that these things are true. When people interface with us, like let's give them no reason whatsoever to say, I'm not listening to that person. Reject my ideas, but man, I'm, gonna, I'm going to love you the best that I, I can. And here's number three. Uh, choose your ultimate authority on purpose. A Christian's authority, progressive or otherwise, comes down to one of two options, and there really aren't any others. Your authority is either going to be the Bible or it's going to be culture. These are your options. And the reason I say on purpose is this. Because you are born and bred in this culture, it is your heart language. If you don't choose intentionally and on purpose a different authority, you will, you will default to culture. That is the default. Every person has to come to grips with the person of Jesus Christ. And they have to come to grips with his lordship and salvation and authority over your life. And then they have to come to grips that he's revealed himself in Jesus, that he's revealed himself in the word. And the word of God is authoritative and truthful, and it will be the transcultural rule of our life, no matter where I am, when I am. It will be the standard for life, truth, and faith, when understood rightly in its context. And so everybody has to make that decision. And what I want to encourage you is if you've personally trusted in Christ, but you have never made the commitment to have the Bible be your authority, now's the time to do that. If you've never trusted in Christ, before you get to the Bible, it starts with Jesus. Have you personally trusted in Christ that he might be the supreme Lord of your life, your God, your Lord, your master? And these two things, when they come together, the gospel gets so clear. The simple, pure, beautiful gospel. So what I want to do is I want to close and I want to pray for you and for our time and and uh, hey, congratulations, by the way. You made it through a 53-minute lecture on progressive Christianity. I'm so proud of you. You did amazing. All the kids, like, rocking. And uh, only 17 of you fell asleep. No, I'm kidding. I didn't see anybody fall asleep. <laughs> All right, I want to pray for you, and then we're going to celebrate communion together. Father, I love you. We love you. It's hard to weed out all the ideas of this world. And Lord, as Christians, we get to disagree on so many secondary and tertiary ideas and doctrines. But Lord, there are some of these ideas that are just too close. Lord, give us the wisdom and discernment to see these ideas, worldviews, philosophies, and theologies for what they are. But Lord, would you also give us a heart of patience and compassion because we have been called to be bright, shining lights of love and gospel truth to this generation. Help us. We want to be faithful, but we also want to be fruitful and love well. And Lord, in this time in history, the two feel almost really hard to keep, to keep together. But you're bigger than all of this and you've given us your spirit to so help us. And Lord, there are probably many watching and listening who are just struggling through this and what it means and maybe there's been vocabulary put to things that they've never had before. And, and Lord, I, I'm just so thankful that you are patient. 
You walk with us through our questions, our doubts, and our struggles. I think of Thomas who just struggled and, and you let him live in that doubt and struggle for a time and then you revealed yourself to him in such, such a personal and beautiful way that he could never deny and that, that man went on to change the world. So God, I, I just thank you for your patience and, and I pray for my brothers and sisters in the room who are watching, who are just struggling through this. Lord, would you prove yourself to be true and patient and kind and good despite how hard it is to get some of these big questions answered. And Lord, most of all, thank you for Jesus. All of our wrong thoughts, all of our wrong ideas, all of our wrong approaches, you cover us by the blood of Christ and we are righteous before you. So when we die and we stand before you, we are saved. We are forgiven and we are redeemed and our eternity is secure, not because we had perfect doctrine, but because we believe the gospel. And you saved us. We love you. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen? Amen. Amen.